Let's open our Bibles again. And again, we're going to turn to Psalm 85. Our text this morning was earlier in the verse, verse 10, and now it's going to be verse 13. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Now our text. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. May God again bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we saw that we have peace with God through justification. Justification is God's work for us, done once for all on the cross of Jesus Christ. It removes all the guilt of our sins. But now verse 13 over against verse 10 is talking about another work of God, the work of sanctification. Sanctification is the fruit of justification. That is now Christ's work within us. John Murray wrote, a theologian, wrote an excellent book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Redemption accomplished for us on the cross, applied within us by God's word and spirit. And that sanctification, beloved, is a lifelong process, isn't it? He is removing from us the pollution, the corruption of sin that has a hold of us. Sanctification has to do with holiness. It means to be made holy. Made holy so that we then may show the glory of God and his grace within our lives. Sanctification, beloved, is God's work, yes, but we are active in it, active in holiness and also in good works. 
But it is always God who works in us, as we read from Philippians, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What a text we have. What this psalm lays before us is five sweet effects of God's mercy to his own. As we looked at from verse 8, it is reconciliation with God, the removal of God's wrath. It is, verse 9, the nearness of God's free salvation. We are already saved and being saved. Verse 10 is the sweet gift of justification. And then in verse 12, we have really the idea there of God's goodness to us during this life on our pilgrimage. And finally, verse 13, the grace of Christ directing and furthering believers in the way of sanctification. So the theme of our text, verse 13, is set in the way of his steps. We are set in the way of his steps. Notice, first of all, that we are set there by God's appointment. Notice we are set in his footsteps. And in those footsteps, we are learning to live here already the life of heaven. Notice in our passage, then, verse 13, righteousness shall go before him. Righteousness occupies every path in Christ's kingdom. That is the chief element of our blessedness. So it's not only a legal righteousness, that we are righteous before God and his law, through the blood of Jesus, but we are also made righteous in our hearts and in our lives. And it is the Lord who works that righteousness in us, isn't it? And it is the Lord who calls us to that righteous living. And it is the Lord who teaches us that righteous living. We don't determine it ourselves. It doesn't come within us. But we are taught from the Lord. So again, verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. He's going to teach us. He's going to guide us in righteous living, holy living, living for him, living in obedience to his commandment. We are taught by the Lord. Righteousness goeth before him. Why is that necessary? Well, boys and girls, why do you have to go to school? If, as some educators, they say, well, all the answers are really within the person, we just got to help them draw them out. What nonsense that is. What nonsense. No, we need to be taught. Even the Lord Jesus, when he came into our human body and our soul, he had to be taught. He learned obedience, we read in the scriptures. We have to learn obedience. And why is it so necessary? Because by nature... We are so foolish. We are so brutish. As we read in Psalm 85, verse 8, 
Let them not return again to folly. Folly is foolishness, stubbornness, sinful living. Or again, we read in Proverbs 16, verse 9, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. So not what we think is best, not what our flesh wants, but rather the Lord directs our steps. You and I need to confess with the psalmist, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, says the psalmist in 73. Part of that psalm was our call to worship, wasn't it? And if you'll remember the rest of that psalm, the psalmist is rather put out. He really says, you know what? I serve God for nothing. Because it is the wicked that are flourishing and not me. I'm suffering. I serve God for naught, he says. And then I went into God's temple. Yes, the psalmist almost had slipped away into destruction. But the Lord brought him into his temple and taught him, didn't he? We need that guidance, that teaching, because our way is so troublesome. Oh, what troubles we meet. Oh, what temptations bombard us. Oh, what problems we have in our life, in our families, in our work. Our way it sometimes is so obscure. What shall I do with my life how will I live my life? How will I make a living, etc.? Our lives are so full of danger and sin, and that's not all, but we are so weak. So weak. In fact, the sins and the troubles of this life are so deep, it's kind of like a big snowfall, a blizzard, and one is not able to see his way as he goes out into the world and he could hardly make it through the drifts. So great are the troubles, dangers, temptations, and sin. And that's why the psalmist asks, doesn't he, in Psalm 119, verse 9, how shall the young direct their light, their way? What light shall be their perfect guide? Six of our young people just made confession of faith. Their whole life, their Christian life is laying before them. And the devil is going to strive to lead them astray, isn't he? The more you confess Christ Jesus, the more the devil is going to go after you. How shall the young direct their way? What light shall be their perfect guide? Thy word, O Lord. So how? It's necessary. How does the Lord do this? We read in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. O Lord, I know that the way of a man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me. But with thy judgment, not in thine anger lest thou bring me down to nothing. What a beautiful prayer 
for us to pray at the beginning of a new week, isn't it? Lord, direct my footsteps. Order my steps in thy word. And do not let iniquity have dominion over me, says the psalmist in Psalm 119. So how does God direct us? Well, beloved, his word. No new revelations. Not left up to the man's imagination. Thy word is a light upon my path and a lamp to my feet. That word, not just by itself, for the word itself can't change a person. You can read and you can read and you can read and you can know the verses by heart. But it is Christ's spirit poured out on his church. Christ's spirit within you that takes that word and causes you to understand it, to see the goodness of it, enabling you and me to walk in it. Yes, order my steps in thy word, and let not iniquity have dominion over me. You see, beloved, our way is a prescribed way. What does that mean? You don't have to dream up what way you should go through life, what things you should do and what things you shouldn't do. It's a prescribed way. It's the way of God's commandments. God, in his love, took the Israelites out of Egypt, and then he didn't say, well, I brought you through the Red Sea, now you go find your own way. God directed them to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, the Lord taught them. He prescribed to them. Now, you are the redeemed people brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, therefore, this is how you worship me. This is how you'll serve me. This is how you'll live with your neighbors. A prescribed way. And our way, our steps in his steps, is an antithetical way. And that means that the Lord by, is telling us, go this way, not that way. Say no to those temptations. Our way is the straight and the narrow way. That's the difficult way with twists and this way and that. Think of Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. It's a narrow way. It's a difficult way. And over against that way, there is the broad way that the wicked easily coast down to their destruction. Set by God's appointment, set in the way of his steps, prescribed, antithetical. Does that describe your lives? Is God's word directing you where you should go? what you should do, how you live your life, how you serve him. So let's look at that second theme then, second point. Set in his footsteps. Oh, that's a grand picture. It's a grand picture. Let me paint it for you. I talked about a blizzard, didn't I? 
That snow is coming down so hard and blowing all around that you can't see. You don't know which way is north, which is south, finally. And the snow drifts are so high. How can you make it through? And so the father takes his son or his daughter, and the father makes footsteps in that snow. Footsteps so that the child following him can know what direction to go. If, for example, he has to go to the barn or in the old days to the outhouse. He knows what direction he has to go. But also, that snow is high. How can he get through? And there are the footsteps. We are set in those footsteps. So now let's apply that of the father to his son and the daughter to our father in heaven. He has footsteps that he makes that we are to follow in, given direction in our life. But not only that, but also enabled to make that way. We use that phrase, don't we, often when we see children following the patterns of their parents. My wife sometimes, to chagrin, would say, yeah, your son is trying to follow exactly like you. You go in the ministry, he thinks he has to go in the ministry. You think you have to be a chaplain in the army? Now he has to be a chaplain in the army. Yes, following in some footsteps. But also, there's another picture. Sometimes we admit that the way is difficult, that there are rather big shoes for us to walk in. That's the truth for many pastors. I talked to someone, and they've been in the same job for 35 years, but this guy is here for a couple years and then another place, and you go to another church, and they might have had a well-loved pastor, very good pastor, And I, as a new pastor, would come there and say, I've got rather big shoes to try to fill. Will I be able to lead God's people as well as the last pastor has? God's footsteps. In our covenantal relationship with God, God reveals himself in his names, but also in his beautiful attributes. And he reveals himself in his wonderful works. What works? Come on. Boys and girls, you know the works of God, don't you? First of all, that grand, eloquent work of God in creation. So that all the world can know his power and his deity. They're without excuse. There is that work of God's providence. Caring for each of his children just like he cares for the creatures of the world mapping out their whole future for them and guiding them in it. And it is that third great work that God reveals himself, doesn't he? We saw that this morning. God's work of redemption. Taking sinners and making them saints. And in our reconciliation, as we noticed this morning, it's exactly four of those attributes that are mentioned, aren't they? Mercy, truth, righteousness, and peace. 
I mentioned one other attribute this morning. Do you remember it? That was God's simplicity. That is an incommunicable attribute. That's one that God alone has. But these four, mercy, truth, righteousness, peace, are communicable attributes. That means those are characteristics, perfections of God that he, by his word and spirit, work in your and my lives. So what does it mean to walk in his steps? It means all the blessings that flow from God are the ingredients are few of a true happiness. May these things that we experience at God's hand now reign in our lives. So in this applicatory sermon, let's ask the question. God is so merciful to us. And as we learn that mercy, are we also merciful, kind, and forgiving of others as we've been forgiven by God? Are we walking in his steps, guided by him? Are we merciful as he's merciful? Or we looked at the attribute of God's truth. Truth not only that we are sinners by nature, but also the truth of eternal life. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but him. God is true. You can read God's word and you can take it for fact. It will not mislead you. It is infallible. Now, are our lives also characterized by truth? Not being hypocrites, putting on a nice show on Sunday and being monsters in the home or in the neighborhood or in the office? Are we true in our responses to others? Do we care for them? Do we speak the truth of God's word or do we hide that? Oh, they might not like it if I speak of the hope that's within me. Are we students of God? God's truth that we read sets us free. Free of worrying what we're going to say. We speak as God teaches us to speak. God is righteous. And God has given us what we can call an alien righteousness. It's not of ours ourselves, but it's a righteousness that comes down from heaven. We read that, didn't we, in verse 11? Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Are we living righteous lives? That's where we distinguish between righteousness as a legal aspect, what God has done before the law, setting us free from the law and its condemnation, but we also speak of it as a spiritual gift. That is Christ's work within us. Saying no to sin and saying yes to God's good commandments. Being right in our way. Being holy. God gives us peace with him. 
Are we peaceable? Do we seek that peace amongst ourselves with one another? Do we seek that peace in our families? Do you seek that peace in your marriages? Do you seek that peace, children, as brothers and sisters in the home? Do we seek that peace in the church? Not envying, not being jealous, not looking down on someone else, but sweet communion, fellowship. And that's where our communion form is so beautiful, isn't it? For it talks about us being brought closer in faith with Christ Jesus, but also with one another. For out of many grains, one bread is baked. Out of many berries pressed together, one wine flows. Are we, as a church, that beautiful communion of fellowship and saints? I believe Yes, we've enjoyed that these last years, haven't we? We've enjoyed that. But we can always continue to improve about that. Seek out those who are kind of lonely in the church. Not always meet in our own little groups, but reach out to one another, as we can do in the the narthex. Or we can do in our daily lives when others are in troubles or trials or sickness, and we reach out with words, with prayers, and with gifts of food. All of those perfections of God meet in Christ Jesus where we are reconciled with God in his cross. You see, as I said, this psalm is really a prophecy about Christ and his kingdom. David was used by God to defeat all of his enemies. Solomon had a kingdom of prosperity and peace. And in that way, both of those saints were types of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ Jesus is the example for his people. Let me read a moment from 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Christ is an example. He did no sin. Neither was there any guile found in him. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He banned all of our sins in his own body. Christ, what an example he is as our leader. He is, as we're called, our elder brother. He is the firstborn of God in God's eternal plan. We were given unto Christ and adopted by God in Christ, his only begotten son. Christ Jesus is our example. But beloved, Christ Jesus is also the one who enables us You're not left to yourself, and you can't do it in your own strength. In this applicatory sermon, hear the words of Philippians 4, verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things, not in my own strength, 
I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful applicatory sermon then. Christ is our example. Christ is also the strength, the one who enables us to live this way in gratitude for our salvation. And so your and my prayer should be that each day you and I may be conformed, transformed more and more and more in the image of Christ Jesus. Transformed in our knowledge of him. Changed so that we become more and more righteous in him. Living holy lives. Isn't that a prayer that we find in the Bible? That we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Set in his footsteps. Oh, those footsteps are big, aren't they? And sometimes it's hard for that little child exactly to step into those big footsteps if the father is taking too big a step. And at times we misstep, don't we, in our lives. Sometimes we're not exactly into his footsteps. And how wonderful that with God there is forgiveness. And that God, like a father, reaches down and takes us by his hand and leads us back to himself if we have drifted off the way or we can't make it through the troubles of this life. You and I are set in his footsteps. That brings me to my third point. Learning, then, to live the life of heaven. Learning to live the life of heaven, that's God's word, work. It's good to hear God's word. He speaks peace to us. He loves us. But we also need to hear his word to be corrected, to be guided, to be instructed in the way that we have to go, don't we? Oh, God's people must govern their lives here by God's holy word. Again, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We're made citizens of the kingdom of heaven, called to live that life now already as strangers and pilgrims in this world antithetically. I want you to think a moment of those immigrants who come to this country. This maybe will help us to understand the idea of justification and sanctification. Those immigrants who come to this country are legally, by a judge, declared citizens. So they are citizens of this country. But... Those recent immigrants have to learn the language, some of the customs, the way of living here. I think of my parents when they came over in 1949. 
they were made and they were declared citizens of the United States. But to their dying day, you could hear the Dutch Baroque coming through in their language, the way they would speak, learning the customs of the people around them. That is a learning curve, isn't it? Well, beloved, that's the way it is for you and me. We are now already citizens of heaven, legally declared citizens by the cross of Jesus Christ, justification. But our whole life, we are being prepared slowly for that life of heaven. To know the language of heaven. Now, I'd like to say it was Dutch, but no, I can't say that. We have to learn the language of heaven. It's a sanctified talk, isn't it? It's a talk with God. It's learning scriptural terminology, reform terminology. Learning customs. What does it mean to be a child of God? How do we act? How do we conduct our business? How do we engage in work and how do we engage in recreation? God's people must be governed by God's word. They have to learn his ways. And the purpose for that, we read, so that we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without beauty in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation that we might shine as lights in the world. Do you know where that's found? That's found in Philippians 2, verse 15. So notice verse 13. God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Why? So that we may be, not like the wicked, but antithetically, we may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, that we might shine as lights in the world. Think of what rebuke is brought and reproach is brought to the church of Jesus Christ and to God himself. When in the church, God's people act sinfully maybe caught stealing, maybe being lazy at work. Surely in these last years we've learned in that abuse that takes place in the home or in the church or in the school. Not blameless, not without reproach. Oh, we need to be taught we need God, Christ Jesus then to work in us, to will and to do of his pleasure so that, with a reason, we may be blameless, we may be harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, that we might shine as lights in the world. And God, by working that in us, God gets the glory, and God is glorified in us. May others take note of us. Look at them. Why in the world every Sunday do they take off in these good clothes and go to church when they could be on the beach on a nice warm day or on the golf course? Why is he... Why is he so honest in his business? He could cut some corners. Oh, may you and I, in 
thankfulness for the great salvation that we have. Remember, this is an applicatory sermon. Oh, that we may show our thankfulness and our love to God for our salvation in all of our life. Not just once in a while, not just when we're in church, not just on Sunday, as we said before, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. That's God's work in us. He gets all the glory. But notice with me, second of all, it is our calling. For you and I are moral agents. You and I are responsible for what we do in our lives. Don't blame God when you make mistakes, when you fall into sin. Yes, you and I are called to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, Philippians 2, verse 12. That means, beloved, that we obey, not grumpily, objecting, but we obey God's commandments gladly. Not murmuring, not disputing, not like children will try to say with their parents and try to compromise, well, can I do just this instead? No, no. Remember two years one mouth, oh, may that be our direction as children to God. What does God say? How is he leading us? Where is he directing us? Where is his footsteps? We have been saved, beloved. We have been saved so that, there's a purpose, so that we may serve our great God and his Christ. And yes, as I said, those are big footsteps. And sometimes we miss, but he forgives us, and he helps us in our infirmities. Oh, child of God, set in his footsteps, we are citizens of heaven. Verse 12, yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. There you have really the picture of heaven, don't you? Romans chapter 4, verse 12, speaks of those Gentiles who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Think of the saints that have gone before. The history of the church, God's people walking in his footsteps, yes, often misled in their own sins, brought back again by God walking in his footsteps because we are citizens of heaven, declared citizens by justification, and now trying to live as citizens of heaven even while here we are here yet on earth. Learning the language of heaven. Wearing the clothing of heaven, those white, right, gorgeous raiments of righteousness eating the food of the kingdom of heaven, God's word, our daily delight, and adopting the customs of that city to which we are going. Here in this world, it is an antithetical life. And that antithetical life means two things. First of all, it means that we are separated by God's steps. We are separated from wickedness. We're separated from that wickedness because, as we read in Peter, 
we are a holy nation. We are a kingdom of priests. Separated from sin, separated unto God. In other words, consecrated to God, dedicated to God. Our lives aren't our own, but our lives are given to us to seek him, to serve him, to live for him. And that's not a part-time job, is it? Our whole life, all of our possessions, body and soul. We read in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of life that now is and of that which is to come. You see, our salvation is not just looking for some day when we get to heaven. Salvation is event right now. Saved from sin, saved to serve Christ Jesus every day. He gives us life here on earth and then everlastingly in the new heavens and the new earth. Now we have a limited portion of the comforts of this transitory life. And we have only a portion of it so that we don't get lulled asleep by the pleasures of this world. Here we only have a taste of our Father's love. And we're not filled yet with an overflowing abundance of good things of this world so that year by year, randomly by the sanctification by God, we taste and we see that God is good. Is that what your life is about, child of God? Set in his footsteps, we taste, we see God is good. That little child is thankful that the father has made footsteps in the snow to guide him in the right way and also so he can get through the high snow of troubles. God's footsteps, we are set in it so that we may enjoy him, live for him, taste and see that our God is good. Amen. Father in heaven, bless thy word. Oh, we thank thee. We thank thee for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Salvation now that we live, not for ourselves. We don't live for sin or Satan but we live for Christ Jesus, guided by his spirit and his word, led, upheld, enabled, so one day we will see thee face to face. Help us, Father, to live that life of sanctification, to grow in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.